Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Deitch. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest on this episode, but an absolute pleasure to have this guest. Someone I've known for a long time. Someone I worked with for a long time. Someone I have immense respect for. Someone who's in the news this week in a significant way. Peter King, the iconic NFL writer, is the guest. I think... Many of you who listen to this podcast know that on Monday, he released his farewell column from NBC Sports saying that after 40 years of, or 40 plus years, I guess, of covering the NFL, uh, he is going to step away from his Monday morning quarterback column and step away from the NFL. And he is gracious enough to come on the day after the Sports Media Podcast. Peter King, Welcome. Richard, how's everything with you? Well, much less eventful than you, Peter. <laughs> so here's my first question for you. So how did it feel to wake up this morning, the day after your final column? I mean, it felt fine. I, ha- I haven't really been too emotional about this. Honestly, Richard, I, I've known for a little while I was going to do it. I knew that I could change my mind if I wanted to, but essentially, and you know how... I mean, we all reach a point in life where we just say it's time. And that's the point that I reached. And people would say, well, geez, just two weeks ago, you're in the office with Andy Reid. He's giving you the 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 all the lowdown about this Tom and Jerry play they ran to win the Super Bowl. And you get Patrick Mahomes on your podcast and you all this stuff, you get all this all this great stuff from people. Why would you walk away? And I think the answer is twofold. One, that you sort of just know it's time when the season gets near the end and you dread two things. Coaching searches. I have no desire to call coaching agents and and talk to people about what's going on, who's going to be the new coach in Washington. I don't care. I just didn't care. And then I knew I had to retire before the scouting combine because I dreaded going to the scouting combine. It isn't that in my life, I've been to 20 scouting combines, I maybe even more than that. And it is a fantastic way to do the job because like 2008, I got an hour and a half with Matt Ryan one night. He turns out to be a great player and blah, blah, you know, whatever. So all these people you get to start a relationship with that it's great, but you also are staying up five nights in a row to 1.30. Man, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I am just not doing that anymore. It's just like, that's the one thing about this column that just ended up killing me having to try to be sensible at 3.15 a.m. on Sunday. I just, you know, it's over. I've had enough. And I've loved it. Absolutely loved it. Luckiest man on the face of the earth. But it just felt like it was time to do something else. And I have no idea what that is, by the way. So we'll get into that. I have a couple things sort of that I want to ask you off this. Um, Because I can absolutely uh, relate to some of the things you just said personally. But before I get to that, one of the things that you know in terms of covering 
uh, athletics for as long as you have is they always tell athletes and coaches, take a few days after the season, don't make any rash decisions, right? You're, you're, you're exhausted, you're tired, never make a sort of a large, a large career decision after a long season. Did you work uh, like at least through that in your mind? Um, because the reality is Peter, like, you know, you just once again, covered another NFL season, you're written out. I'm sure at this point, did you contemplate it all? Like, okay, you know, maybe it is time for me to end this, but I'm going to at least walk away for two months and see how I feel in April before I, I, I announce it to the world. No, Richard, I never really thought of that because I knew that if I kept doing the job, that at least until, let's say, the draft, when then I could I could take off for two months uh, after that until training camps began. And that would have been fine, or almost three months, really. But I one of the things that, that I wrote in my column, I just, it got to the point where the last two mo- weeks of April, in the last two years, three years, four years, were misery. It was like I felt like Kathy Bates in misery or James Kahn in misery, honestly, because you know what happens? Your entire life is about what are the Lions going to do at seven? What are the Bengals going to do at 15? And boy, if the Bengals do this, that affects the Seahawks at 19. I don't know where anybody's picking. I'm just making that up. And that's part of the minutiae that I really, in the last few years, have totally fallen out of love with. And it would have been an incredible effort to do that and to cover the combine and to cover free agency and to cover the draft. I just don't want to do it. (laughs) You know, I just don't want to do it. And so I could have taken some extra time and all that, but in the middle of taking that time, the world goes by. And if I'm going to take three weeks after the Super Bowl, then all of a sudden I've never met Caleb Williams. I've never met any of these guys. And, you know, that's part of the job. And if you don't want to do the job, then get out. So anyway, that's kind of how I felt. That's okay. So I want to get into this because, um, because I appreciate your, your honesty and transparency here. Um, when I read your piece, um, and I've read similar pieces as well. Jeff, my uh, former colleague, the athletic Jeff Schultz uh, in Atlanta, wrote yeah, a piece wrote a that you sort of referenced. And so one thing that really sort of hit home for me is like what happens when the obsessiveness like decreases uh, in the job? Like for me, when I'm still in the middle of a story, like the process of writing it or talking to people, like that's still really exciting to me. And I, I you know – I want to do my sort of best possible work, um, and I want to let readers know um, interesting things about you know the media. At the same time, though, Peter, I, I, I'm not going to bullshit the audience or bullshit you. Like the transactional part for me is also tiring. I'm not as into it as I used to be. We have some great people. I mean, my new colleague Andrew Martian is probably the best at it ever in terms of like being on top of those transactions. But I, when I read your piece, I sort of started to think like, is there still a place in your opinion um, for someone, let's say, who does what you did for as many years as you did it? Um, not – how do I sort of phrase this? Like in some ways I see your job like can it be done without being obsessive about the transactions? You know what I mean? Like it, it's sort of like it feels like that's what the audience – if, if, if let's put it this way, if it's not what the audience wants, it certainly seems like it's what management of places like where we work want. And I could have asked that more elegantly, but how do you see that that part? Well, first of all, one of the things that you have to have to be able to do the job well is a certain obsessiveness. And you know, I told the story in my column that, and look, I just I just looked it up, but my column this week is 12,280 words long, okay? And two sentences in the column. Here were two sentences in the column. John Madden coached, it's in numbers game where, you know, my stat section. I said, 
John Madden coached his last NFL game at age 42. Andy Reid has coached 429 NFL games since turning 42. And, you know, and I'll tell you how that how that came to be. Last Wednesday at about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up. And as men who are 66 years old do most nights, I went into the bathroom off our bedroom and I was in there and I just started to think because I was starting to think about this column. And I remembered one of the things when I took the bus ride across the country, I talked to Madden a lot about how, holy cow, you never coached a football game after the age of 42. That's pretty amazing. Most people are just getting started. So we talked about that a bunch. And I just thought, you know, I need to do something about that in my final column because it's so interesting to me. So I was thinking, thinking, I'm in the bathroom and all of a sudden, I'm just going to look up a couple of coaches on my phone. I looked up Belichick. I looked up Andy Reid. And I just decided, my God, Andy Reid, hottest coach in the game, just won the Super Bowl. Here's who he is. And he's coached 429 games since John Madden, after John Madden coached his last. And I went to bed and I was so excited. I said, that's going to be a great note in this column. And I couldn't fall back to sleep. And I, I love that stuff. I love thinking about things that no one else would figure out, would know. And I love slapping people in the face with that. I have to imagine that at least one or two or three people read that and uttered, Holy crap. Yeah, I did. Or that effect. I was, I was one. I did, I couldn't yeah. believe reading that, that uh, John Madden had not coached a football game after the age of 42. It's, a, it's amazing. It's amazing. But, but anyway, anyway, that is what this job is, at least the way I look at it. Now, for Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport, you know what their job is? Their job is, okay. There's three defensive coordinator spots left. I got to break that tomorrow. I got to get the next defensive coordinator. I don't care. I don't, you know. And so that's their that's their business. My business is finding out and remembering and getting doing factoids like if Jimmy Johnson drove his boat 81 miles south from his front yard in the Florida Keys, he could dock in Havana. I mean, those are the things that I like. I don't know. Maybe nobody else does. But judging by the fact that in the 30 hours since this announcement was made, since my column came out, I've had 1,471 emails from readers saying thank you or words to that effect. Some of them saying glad to see you go. But in essence, some people... I think like this and, and Richard, I'll just say one other thing you asked, you know, can it be done can, and all this stuff. And I say, you know what? I look at some of the people who are young in this business. I look at Ben Solak, who's 26 years old at the ringer. Who's an unbelievable writer who went to the university of Chicago, having no desire whatsoever thought he'd ever be a sports writer and now I think he's one of the best young guys covering the NFL, period. You look at Jordan Rodriguez at The Athletic, who I think is utterly brilliant. Kaylin Kaler, my former colleague at the MMQB, uh, she is great. And I think there are so many people who can do it, and somebody, somebody will do it. You know, Albert Breer and Mike Sando, those guys are great. Somebody is going to do it. Uh, you know, and some and a lot of these people do it just as well as I did it. They just do it maybe in a little bit of a different way. All the people you mentioned, excellent. and very, very uh, proud to work with uh, the, those that you worked at, uh, mentioned from The Athletic. Was it um, how was it to see, you know, you, you really lived the old expression. Uh, you got to see your own funeral. What was it like yeah. uh, sort of seeing uh, almost universe? I mean, 
I'm sure there were some negative comments because it's you know social media. But generally speaking, Peter, this was a universal uh, thanks and gratitude for you. That had to be nice. I, you know, I know I, I I don't know how much you were aware of it, but um, at least from my perspective, it was awesome to see. You know, Richard, I've seen most of the things that were on Twitter, but I I have not gotten to the end of my text messages. And I certainly haven't gotten to the emails. Now, most of the emails are from readers, but some of the emails were from, you know, two coaches wrote to me at my, uh, at my um, Peter King FMIA at gmail.com, you know, because they don't have my email address, a few of them, but anyway, look, it's, it's just nice. It, it's wonderful, but you know, I've always, I've always just tried to work as hard as I can when I make a mistake. And believe me, I've made some and they have been whoppers. Make a mistake, you admit it and you own up to it. And, you know, you just try every day to understand that I'm working for the person who's on the other side of this column, who opens his laptop or his phone and, you know, reads my column. That's who I'm working for. I mean, obviously, NBC is paying me but or was paying me but i my whole job was to work for the readers and that's who i always thought of uh can you give me one person who just was really interesting that reached out to you that you might not have expected <laughs> you know i don't know why this sticks out but i love baseball so much but the guy who runs the baseball hall of fame josh josh rawich reached out to me and with a very, very nice email and invited me to come up to the Hall of Fame. Um, and, you know, I got a bunch of nice emails. I mean, look, I was sort of advocating for Mike McCarthy to get fired after the season. And he wrote me a really, really nice uh, text message. And, you know, a, a bunch of coaches and general managers, Rich McKay, who I worked with very closely, over the years on the competition committee, he's run the competition committee. And I've, I've had a fascination about rules and the competition committee and all that. So I've had many long conversations with him and he wrote me a really nice note. So I, you know, Peyton Manning wrote a, a really good note, Tom Brady, but you know, it was that it's just, it's nice to realize that, Look, I can't do anything for these people anymore, uh, uh, but they just were thoughtful enough to to drop me a note. So it was good. That's cool. Um, did NBC try to talk you out of this? Not really. Last year, I talked to Sam Flood about it, and I think he knew what I was thinking. And look, Richard, honestly, we may love this column. There's a lot of people who may love this column. But I doubt that it that it made enough money to pay what NBC was paying me. I doubt it, you know, because remember, I went to NBC uh, in 2006, originally part time to do just the football night in America show to be on there for 90 seconds to say who got hurt that day, who's getting fired, all that other stuff. And then I did it for, I think, three years with Florio. And then he took over and I just started to do the column. And then when they hired me full time in 2018, when I left SI, there was no way they were paying me what they paid me to be on TV. So anyway, I think that and I'm sure NBC, we could have worked out some sort of deal if I wanted to keep doing it. But I just don't think words are very profitable anymore. It's a sad thing, but that's what's happened to our business. Someone that we both worked with at Sports Illustrated, um, Sandy Rosenbush, used to be Sandy Bailey, um, yeah. when, who had an incredible career for, with the New York Times and ESPN and Sports Illustrated. She made a, a, a U-turn, Peter, uh, at one point and became a New York City public school teacher after this pretty incredible career. And then, by the way, went back to sports for a little bit. So I, I got to thinking, because I know you are someone, obviously, who um, who's always loved talking to young people. Uh, I think you've, 
I don't know if it was full time, but I know you've occasionally taught a class or so. And it just sort of got me thinking: Would you consider a different profession? Like, would you? And yes. no one's no one's saying okay. Uh, no one's saying you got to do you know fifteen hours a day. But have you thought about that? Whether it would be something like teaching, or whether it would be something really just totally different. And if so, what are your what are your thoughts at the moment on something like that? I've thought about it, and I've thought I've talked to Jane McManus, who's over at Seton Hall. You know, our mutual friend. Um, I've talked to Kelly Whiteside, who also is Columbia. Gotten yeah. into the Montclair teaching. State. Yeah. yeah, at Montclair State. She's gotten into the teaching side. Um, I'm I'm interested. Um, I I would like to, and I realize that a, a lot of people like that have got to fairly soon start to think about their staff in the fall and the classes that they teach in the fall. What I have honestly thought about is doing nothing for the next two months. Yeah. That's honestly. what I would advise. Yeah. I, I don't want, I don't want to do anything. So I don't really want to make a decision. I'll, you know, I'll take a meeting, you know, and I'll, I'll talk to people certainly, but I don't have, I don't want to do anything for a while. And then I just want to wake up one morning and say, you know, Teaching would be really cool. I think I should do that. Because honestly, Richard, I think I think I have something to offer kids. And it's different than what you might think. Because when I was uh, living in Montclair, New Jersey, there was a girl at Montclair High School who I was good friends with her father. His name was Dave Kaplan. He ran the Yogi Berra Museum in Montclair after being a sports editor at the Daily News. And this girl's name was Emily Kaplan. And Emily was a very eager go-getter who wrote freelance stuff for the Montclair Times. And when she was in high school, I remember I took her to a, a minor league baseball game and I made her write the story on deadline. She was fantastic. But she was getting ready to go to Penn State. And my advice was don't do one thing. You have no idea how stories are going to be told, how the business is going to work five, six, eight years from now. So do a bunch of different things. And now Emily Kaplan, even though she basically, I think, just worked at the paper at Penn State for the mo most of her time there. Emily Kaplan now sits between the glass on ESPN hockey games and interviews coaches and players in a cacophonous surrounding, which to me is hugely impressive but emily kaplan is doing what kids should do in that you don't know what the job is going to be so you better be ready to do any job and that is really probably how i would if i do teach that's going to be my 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 driving force lesson yeah so my thought on first of all it's uh, both of us obviously having worked with emily it's awesome to see her uh success. Yeah. It's a great person. And uh, it's always great to see hardworking people uh, find that. To me, you're in a great position because the reality is you have the privilege where you're not going to teach to pay the bills. Like you're going to teach because you want to, you want to teach, you want to impart your wisdom and your experience on kids. And so I think you should do it um, because you have one, the privilege to do it. But two, I happen to agree with you. One of the things as someone who's taught uh, in two countries now um, that kids really, really, or I shouldn't say kids, that students really want is they want real life experience. They want them, they want people who have been there where they hope to be. And that's the best teacher for them as opposed to theory or, you know, reading some interview book. So I hope you do it. And I think you'd be terrific at it. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports 
Center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I want to ask you a couple things just about sort of your career. It's going to probably be a little bit different. This will be more media centric than like, you know, how do you evaluate Mahomes versus Brady? One of the things that, um, and I wrote this on Twitter and I think I wrote this for the athletic too. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is that, and I mean this, I'm not kissing your ass just because you're on here. Cause I think I've told you this before. You were far and away the most well-known person that I worked with in the 2010s. You were the most important writer at Sports Illustrated because of the metrics that you brought in. You weren't the best writer, to be blunt, nor was I, even close, but you were the most important. Many people in your position, Peter, would have just taken that prominence and just made a shitload of money, either at Sports Illustrated or ESPN or whoever else was trying to court you at the time. Instead, you use that leverage to start the MMQB as a sub-brand for Sports Illustrated. And you ended up hiring however many people, 8, 9, 10, including Jenny Vrentis, Robert Klemko, Emily Kaplan, Kaylin Keller. I mean, the people who you hired have gone on to great stuff. I was beyond fortunate to be on that first staff with you to write a media column, which absolutely helped me. And I wonder, now as you reflect back on it, to me, that's your, to me, this is the greatest thing you've done in journalism is you provided jobs for others and you became a digital pioneer, even if you didn't choose to be. As you look back on this now, how much of this was like pre-planned and thought in your mind or how much of it was happenstance that like in 2013, you saw that like Bill Simmons and some other people were like doing their own sites and you're like, you know what, maybe, maybe I could do something like this at Sports Illustrated. You know, Richard, I don't know if, I don't know how many people would know this. I don't even know if you would know this, but actually the way this all started was in 2012, I made it known to a few people that my contract was expiring at Sports Illustrated at the end of that year, at some point in the off season in, you know, spring of 2013, let's say. And so I just wanted to get it out there that I might be available. And so I had long talks with NBC uh, that almost resulted in me going to NBC full-time. And I had a long talk one day at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. with John Walsh of ESPN. And John Walsh came up with this idea of a microsite, of a site that would live under the ESPN umbrella, basically. And I, I thought it was really smart I had actually thought of this, but not to this extent. Um, and then I was really smitten with the idea. But I also had it in my mind that I knew that I was important at that time to a brand that had done everything for me, but that was really struggling right now. And back in 2013. And so my whole thought was, okay, I really think this might be what I want to do, but I'm going to go to SI and I'm going to ask them, would you do this? And honestly, uh, you know, at the time, Paul Fichtenbaum was, you know, who now is your big boss at The Athletic. He was the guy who was going to make this decision at Sports Illustrated. And he decided this is something we would really like to do. And they invested in it and they gave me a number and they said you can hire either three or four people for this number they you got a salary cap but you can hire as many people who will fit under this number fit in this number and then you can start your site and you know there was a lot more discussion than that but i ended up not doing it at espn even though my staff at espn would have been significantly larger we would have had separate offices. It would have been a treat, quite honestly. And we would have probably spent a lot of money. Who knows? I don't know. 
But I was glad to do it at Sports Illustrated because I OSI everything, everything. So what happened was essentially I wanted to find some people who wouldn't necessarily need to make a lot of money, but who wanted the opportunity. And Jenny Varentis, she, when I was near the t- end times of living in New Jersey, before moving out of there, when my kids aged out, Jenny was a young writer who was a backup beat writer on both the Giants and the Jets for a while. And she wrote some really insightful, cool stories. And I said, wow, I, I really am impressed with her. And my own thing, I just figured she probably wouldn't need to make a lot of money. And I went after Jenny. I went after Robert Klemko, who I saw stand up to Ray Lewis at, when Lewis was angry with him in a Ravens locker room after a game. And he stood there as calm as anything. And I said, wow, what is that guy made of? And I, and, and look, I look into these people, so I didn't hire him just for that reason, but I hired him there, Andy Benoit, um, Greg Bedard, um, and the editing staff. Um, you know, all were people who, Bedard was a little bit older, but I tried to find people who were very young and who were hungry. And that was the greatest thing about working with those people. They were they were like eight-year-old kids who ran out of the car and ran to the soccer field and said, hey, coach, I'm here, you know, and they were just fantastic to work with. I'll love them till the day I die. Kalen Kaler. Nobody knows this story about Kalen and why I am so incredibly excited at what she has done. But do you realize we hired Kalen Kaler to be my administrative assistant, I think 2015, she was going to make hotel reservations and and airplanes and all this stuff. She was going to reserve rooms to have meetings. She was going to do all this stuff. And now you look at her nine years later, and she is a burgeoning star covering the NFL, breaking stories at The Athletic. But I remember when we hired her, I didn't, I I wanted Mark Moravik and Matt Gagne, the two big editors, to basically make that hire. Who do you want to hire? So they picked her over a couple of other candidates because they really liked her spunkiness and how excited she was. And Richard, she was a cheerleader for four years at Northwestern. She didn't write a lot at Northwestern. And so I thought once I saw her on the road, like on a training camp tour, I said, holy cow, there's something with this, with this woman, really something. And, and anyway, but those are the kind of people you want to work with. You don't want to have to drag it out of somebody. You want Emily Kaplan and Kaylin Kaler and Jenny Varentis and Robert Clem. You want these people to just, to let them loose. You're going to Mexico to find out who stole Tom Brady's jersey. And they found out, they got the story. And so that, you look, hey, one other thing, Emily Kaplan, she is the one who wrote the story about the Aaron Andrews peephole guy. And Aaron Andrews cooperated with her, with the story. And that's Emily Kaplan, she got it done. She didn't know Aaron Andrews, but the force of her will got that story done. How do you not love working with people like that? Yeah, I mean, if you the the great thing about that staff is if you look at the people, particularly the young hires at the time, and like what they've gone on to do is unbelievable. Every person you mentioned has is essentially the, at the top of their profession. Robert Klemko now cover not just covering sports anymore, but covers conflict around the world. Well, he's he's now he's now doing. I think. He has been promoted to the national crime reporter at the Post. Oh, okay, so he's now he's even got another gig. But he actually- did. He did. He reported it uh, from Ukraine. That's right. Yeah, early in the conflict. But- uh, yeah, I mean, un- unbelievable. And then you know the 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 auxiliary people that you had, where I put myself, Don Banks, um, Andrew Brandt. It was really. Yeah. It was. A, it was a great staff, and I'm glad you cited a couple of the editors there. Mark Moravic was. Uh, and Mike Gagne. He made yeah. it. He made it go. 
Bravik was the great unappreciated person. He got a Gary Gramling was fantastic. Gary Gramling. Another, yeah. I mean, the thing, this is, you know, again, these are, it's very inside baseball stuff, but I'll just let the audience know. So Mark Moravik, who was the first top editor at the MMQB, and again, a guy who was a visionary when it came to this stuff, later on in his career was Grant Wall's personal editor at Grant Wall's yeah. site. So, you know, there's a lot of people in the business who are not as well known as Peter King, but they really make the business roll. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. All right, a couple more things here, Peter. Then I'm gonna let you go back on your, uh, you know, your 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 retirement. I'm taking you out of your, uh, you know, the guy guy retires, and I got guy I text him to ask if he can come on. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that um, made your work really really important, and obviously you got things that no one else got, was access. You had an incredible amount of connections, uh, probably more than. Yeah, maybe Chris Mortensen was sort of your equal at that time or whatever, but you know, you really you 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 were you were a relate you were in the relationship business and were able to get into places that most people could not. Of course, when it comes to access, Peter, you're going to get criticized for that. You're going to get criticized for you're too you're too soft on your subjects, or um, you favor people. I get this too myself when you write about media; it's sort of inevitable. I wonder just how you handled that and how you saw that over the years, um, and how you even navigated it. And like, you know, because the reality is like Tom Brady's not letting maybe more than one reporter come up to his place in Montana and you're that reporter. So you're going to get the story at the same time, you know, you have to navigate their long, long-term relationship with a guy like Tom Brady. So how did, how did you navigate all this stuff? The Brady thing was really kind of unique, Richard. And the reason that I think that Brady um, and I started to get close and and I, can I just preface this by saying when we say, oh, yeah, when somebody says you're close to Tom Brady, I am not close to Tom Brady. I'm not good friends with Tom Brady. I and I it's not quite transactional either because I like Tom Brady and I really wish him well. And I think, by the way, he's going to do a good job on Fox. But that's a whole that's a whole different story. But the reason why. I got into knowing Tom Brady is that, you know, in I think it was 2004, might have been 05, he won Sportsman of the Year at SI. And I was the person who advocated with Terry McDonald why he should give Sportsman of the Year to Brady. And I said, here's the biggest reason, that he just won the Super Bowl and now he's the 13th highest paid quarterback in football. And he's okay with that. You know why he's okay with it? Because he's told Scott Pioli and Bill Belichick, I'm fine at taking less money. I just want to make sure you guys spend to the cap every year. I can make money off the field that these other guys can't make. I'd rather make less money from you and have the best chance to win. And I said, Terry, who does that in sports? People might say they'll, they're not going to be pigs at the trough, but you know what? Then they become pigs at the trough and they affect their team's chances to win. And Brady and his agent, uh, a very mature, <laughs> smart guy named Don Yee, who I'm sure realized that he was not going to get a lot of great recruits because the other agents could say, look, he's got the best player in football and he's the 13th highest paid quarterback. But Don Yee served Tom Brady. Anyway, be all that as it may, at the sportsman event, Terry McDonald told that story and Brady came up to me like with immense gratitude in his eyes. And his dad came up to me and said, you realize when Tommy was in junior high school and high school in the fall, he would come home and every Thursday he'd go through Sports Illustrated to see if you guys had written anything on Joe Montana or the 49ers. And so that became my in with Tom Brady. And it's just, it's Sports Illustrated. That's what it is. I might be a swell guy, Richard, but I also had the, the entree point of being at a place that he and his family really loved. And, and I think what, what I really appreciated about Brady later in life is, you know, a week after that game 
that where he came back to beat Atlanta, I emailed him and I proposed coming and telling the story while it's still fresh in his head. And he comes off the ski slope at this beautiful mountain in Montana and spends 86 minutes with me that afternoon telling me every detail of what happened in the game and all these other things in his life. But Richard, I think in my, in my, uh, I guess in my defense, what I would say about all that is that I've reached the position in life where I understand that some of the things that I do because I have this access that I am going to be criticized for. And you know what I don't say? I don't say, oh, they're just jealous. I say, I have to check myself every step of the way because I don't want people to be able to say that. Or I want to be able to have a defense for why I did something. And so I understand that's been said about me. It was said a lot with Favre. And a lot of people are right about Favre. I did get too close to Favre at one point. I really did. But I learned something from it, too, that as close as you are, you got to keep a distance also. So I think that's part of the education process of doing what I've done. When's the last time you talked to Brett Favre? I'd say maybe two years ago, early on in his Mississippi scandal. I just asked him if he wanted to talk about it, and he said he couldn't. Uh, and that was really about it. And, you know, it was tough when I had to write this final column because Favre was always available to me. Uh, he spent 45 minutes on the phone the night before he went into rehab telling me about his near-death experience and, you know, with Vicodin and all that stuff. So I'm really grateful for all the information and all the times that that Favre gave me time. But there was so much about what happened at the end, especially in Mississippi, that was hard to justify. I was going to write something about it, but I said, it's too complicated. It's just too complicated. So I just didn't write about it at all. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sure some people will always mythologize Brett Favre, but I don't know how you could look at him the same way. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. All right, the last one for me, and I again, Peter, I appreciate the time, is, um, you know, both of us uh, um, have had really, really incredibly fortunate careers. I, you know, again, like you, I owe everything to Sports Illustrated, and I, I can really, you know, obviously I do, have not had your career, but I could relate to what you just said because I remember calling people from the Metro Community News in Buffalo and not getting any calls back, and then <laughs> saying you're from Sports Illustrated and literally getting a call back in 20 minutes. Like, it wasn't yeah. me. Yeah. It was Sports yeah. Illustrated. So I always remember that. But, um, you know, w both of us, especially over the last year, um, the media cuts have been brutal. Um, and endless, and we have also seen this with our own employer at Sports Illustrated. Uh, the fate of their those editorial employees sort of remains up for grabs uh, as two sort of companies fight it out. Um, you want you mentioned that you know you, you're interested in teaching and that you may want to go into the profession. And I'm sorry, you may want to go into teaching, and I think that's great. And I think students can really 
get something from you. At the same time, I think knowing you, you'll be honest with them about what the landscape in front of them is. And so, you know, information is always going to exist and journalism and writing will always exist. But I wonder just from your perspective, um, where you th- see things now? Uh, do you still remain an optimist in terms of the profession? Because it, it gets harder, I would argue, almost every day to be optimistic when you see layoffs at Vice and the Washington Post and Sports Illustrated, and it never ends. It's never ending. So as someone who's accomplished as much as you have, how do you see this right now? It's easily you know, the saddest time since I got my first job in the business with the Associated Press in early 1980. It's, and it continues to be, you just think, well, we've, we've hit the floor and then there's a lower floor to be hit. And that's one of the things, honestly, Richard, that worries me about standing in front of a group of 25 young, you know, 19, 20 year old students who are incredibly excited about getting into either the journalism business or some something in the media business. You know, the business is bad right now. So I wonder, do you really want to encourage people to start on this path where, in essence, they are going to be in many ways like the waitress who works in Los Angeles while she's going to every audition in Hollywood for 18 months. And then finally she has to give up and move back to Des Moines. I mean, do do I want to sort of set people on that path that might be an incredibly frustrating path? And I guess I would say two things. You know, if you can write and you can read And if you can be an intelligent, thinking, contributing member of society, there's a lot of jobs you can do that aren't necessarily just being a writer for a paper, covering the NFL, doing anything like that. There's a lot of jobs, including, you know, going to get your teaching certificate, for instance, and teaching English somewhere. So I would just emphasize to people, Look, you might not get a job. When, when I went to college, I w- was hopeful of getting a job when I got out at the Columbus Dispatch or the Columbus Citizen Journal in Ohio. Um, and just basically getting a job, I would have covered anything. Those jobs really are not there in the volume that they once were. So you have to keep your options open. You may have to think about PR. You may have to think about, you know, which I think is unfortunate. You may have to think about things like team and league websites where, you know, as I wrote in my column the other day, look, these are good job opportunities. But if you think you're going to do journalism there, just ask Jim Trotter what that's like. And, you know, so so I just think it's different, but it's not impossible. Peter King has been a sports writer for 44 years. And in 27 of those years, wrote the most important football column that's out there. Uh, his his Monday morning quarterback column or f- football morning in America column, whatever sort of the iterations are. I can say on a personal note, uh, having worked uh, for him for a short time at the MQB and obviously worked with him at Sports Illustrated, it was an absolute honor and privilege. Uh, Peter did an enormous amount of things for me. I'll even just tell one quick story as we sort of say bon voyage to peter uh one of the one of the um i didn't always do media and one of the things i did as a special project editor at sports illustrated was um putting together a group of people who would write sportsman of the year essays in addition to the main essay because only one person in sports illustrated ever got to write the main story about sportsman of the year and so uh in order to make myself look good for management i wanted the best writers or the most prominent writers there so I'd reach out to Tom Verducci or Bill Knack or Tim Layden uh, and Peter King. And again, you know, he was always somebody who, if I asked, hey, you know, can you give me like 700 words on like, you know, who you think is a sportsman of the year this year? And he did it. Didn't do anything for him. He wasn't paid for it. 
Uh, but stuff like that helped me immeasurably because it sort of convinced management that, hey, this guy's not a total idiot and we should probably keep him around because he's got some interesting ideas and people seem to want to write for him. So, Peter, it's been an absolute uh, privilege to know you. Um, and again, to me, your great legacy is not the football stuff. It's the MMQB and what all of those people who we mentioned on this podcast have gone on to do. And then they will pay it forward as well when, you know, they're your age or my age. Um, and they will help inspire, I think, others to uh, continue in the profession. So um, I wish you nothing but uh, the best of health and success. Take a couple months off. And then um, I'm really excited about you teaching. Um, you know, you as you know, you can always, I know a lot of people in the profession, the teaching profession. Uh, so please don't hesitate. But uh, you would be such an asset to so many programs. And I, to, selfishly, I hope you do that. As a son of a professor, I, I think you'd be awesome at it. And so uh, thank you uh, for the time and for everything and for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, my pleasure. Call anytime and really let's stay in touch. One of these days we'll be sitting at a Blue Jays Blue Jays game together. That'll be on me, Peter. You've I've made I've you've got me a lot enough money where I'm I'm ta- I will be paying for that. So thank you, <laughs> Peter King, everyone. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Peter King. Listen, you know, obviously, that was a very sort of complimentary interview, but Peter King did a lot for me. So I'm not going to bullshit this audience. Um, I have great, immense respect for him. He was such a great colleague, uh, not just to me, but to so many, and that's the reason why you saw all the. Know, the sort of the tributes for him um you know <laughs> all of us could wish that uh that would be the case when we retire but it's not going to be the case for most of us including me um and so uh um, it was great to see yeah, he absolutely deserved it um if you like these podcasts uh head to the archives page uh last couple austin carp came on did a little media discussion and talk sue bird the uh hall of fame to be uh basketball player uh talking about her her journey into the media. Uh, that was great. She was awesome. Uh, Kristen Lapis, who directed the recent Giannis doc on Amazon. Recent guest CNBC's Alex Sherman. Kenny Smith. Noah Eagle. Again, there should be stuff that uh, that you like. Uh, at least I hope so. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his hard work. Uh, he stepped up today uh, to turn this one around really, really quick. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their sport. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.